This is The Legal Impact, a podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.umnh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host that do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead, and today I'm joined by Professor John Gravy, director of the Warmby Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service. Learn more about them over at law.unh.edu slash Rudman. Welcome back to the show. Nice to see you, AJ. Let's not bury the lead. I really want to start off with Students for Fair Admission, also known as FAIR, v. Harvard College and the University of North Carolina, which struck down race-based affirmative action in college admissions. And this case has been a long time coming. It's been discussed for many years with what FAIR has been trying to do. Uh, but what, what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, it's not it was not a surprise um, at all. Really affirmative action, you know, the idea of government using racial preferences in decision making, you know, and in in distributing, um, you know, imposing burdens and distributing benefits. I mean, it has been sort of hanging on by the fingernails uh, since a pair of decisions in the early 2000s that came from the University of Michigan. Um, one decision struck down the admissions policy of University of Michigan undergraduate for, for having race play too big a role. But the law school admissions policy at University of Michigan Law School was upheld uh, in a narrow decision written by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who's of course since left the court. It held that uh, the achievement of um, the educational benefits that flow from racial ethnic diversity in the classroom as one factor among many that that was a sufficiently strong interest to let uh, secondary schools and post-secondary schools take race into account in constituting their incoming classes. She also, at the near the end of the opinion, very famously said she expects, or, or speaking for the majority, that, that they expected that in 25 years, there would be no more need uh, for the use of race uh, in this way. And this was a 2003 decision. So um, we're talking 25 years being 2028. We're a few years short of that, uh, but as this case or this pair of cases actually reached the court, I think it, it surprised nobody that the court, you know, didn't wait the full 25 years um, to to put and to inter the diversity rationale as a sufficient reason uh, for permitting government to take race into account. And so, as a consequence of this decision, uh, both state institutions and private institutions, such as Harvard. Are, are barred from explicitly using race as a criterion in constituting incoming classes uh, in education. Harvard is not the government. So it, it was actually interesting the way the opinion was written. It, it, it talked about how both the Harvard plan and the North Carolina plan violated the Equal Protection Clause. But the Equal Protection Clause does not by its terms apply to Harvard, which is a private entity. What applies to Harvard, though, is Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 which bans discrimination by entities receiving federal funding. And so that's how Harvard was hooked into this. And that's why this is going to have um, a pervasive effect. This isn't a ruling that just affects public universities. It's going to affect all secondary schools. Something that's interesting to point out also is there are a handful of states that already had this on the books, including New Hampshire, right? That's right. New Hampshire had has a statute on the books that already barred the university system, our schools within the university system, from uh, from using race. Um, Michigan and California um, and Texas all uh, quite notably uh, changed their law so as to ban the use of affirmative action. And so those jurisdictions have gone in other directions uh, in terms of constituting classes. And so 
there are lots of roadmaps out there for um, universities um, as we move ahead. One plan um, used in Texas is to admit the certain a certain percentage that you know that in Texas the top ten percent of all graduating students from any high school class gets admitted uh, to the University of Texas, and that you know has a diversifying effect along you know, racial and ethnic metrics, um, because so many schools are racially identifiable in the country. There's so many schools where, uh, which are not integrated. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a surprise. It's not a surprise at all, um, but it's a major, major decision. You know, it's, it's, it's yet again, this Supreme Court overruling a major precedent. You know, uh, the, the court, the majority didn't say they were overruling the Grutter decision from 2003, but, um, the dissent makes a pretty powerful argument that that they did because it does seem as though Harvard and U- University of North Carolina really did try to implement a system based on the guidance from that Grutter decision in 2003, which was in turn based on an opinion written by Justice Powell back in a case called Bakke from 1978. So this is something that the Supreme Court has been struggling with for decades. You know, clearly, as we as we look ahead, universities are going, I mean, universities are not going to give up um, attempting to enroll diverse classes. The question uh, as we move ahead is how. And the court was pretty clear that using methods that are really pretextual, that are just that are designed to hide, you know, a racial motivation, that that's not going to be allowed. But then the court also did say none of this means, though, that that the uh, university can't act favorably on an applicant who says, for example, you know, here's Here's my essay, and I'm going to talk to you about how being uh, a member of a historically disadvantaged group has really affected my life. And which Harvard responded with a direct, <laughs> a direct response within the first 24 hours after the ruling, directly uh, reinforcing that they are aiming on going in that direction. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Though I mean, yes, that line. You're going to see that line, and so the question is going to be, how is that line going to be interpreted? Justice Gorsuch and Thomas wrote separately to suggest that. You know, they actually view Title VI, which applies to public and private institutions, by the way, um, as banning race even more than the Equal Protection Clause does. That if race plays any factor whatsoever in a decision, uh, that that's going to be a violation of Title VI. I don't know that there'll be five votes for that proposition, but that Justice Gorsuch drew on the opinion that he wrote a few years ago, which interpreted Title VII, which bans discrimination in employment because of sex, uh, he he construed that to uh, apply to discrimination on the basis of sexual identity or sexual orientation as well, uh, with a very sort of formal but for analysis. And if they use that same analysis in this context, if the university acts favorably on somebody writing about race, that might be problematic for those justices. We'll see if that you know garners a majority of the court. A couple of other interesting, just interesting things about the case. Uh, a very, very powerful dissent um, penned by uh, Justice uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the newest member of the court, who was just concluding her first year of service on the court. Um, I mean, Justice Thomas has written very powerfully over the years about his belief that affirmative action um, imposes stigma. And, um, you know, in, in, he's used language suggesting that affirmative action, however, howsoever motivated, is just as evil as the segregation that led to Jim Crow in America. And uh, boy, did Justice Jackson um, take issue with that view. 
and clearly got to, in my view, <laughs> Justice Thomas. His his dissent really went after her separate opinion in dissent. His not his dissent. I'm sorry, his concurring opinion yeah. really went after her dissent in an angry way. And she kind of ignored him, except a footnote at the end saying, you know, Justice Thomas's prolonged assault on what I've written here attacks a dissent that I didn't write uh, based on reasoning that I didn't employ. So interesting, uh, interesting to see the level of tension there between Justice Thomas, who's obviously under a lot of pressure because of continuing revelations about his behavior and uh, because his jurisprudence um, is so controversial, um, and the newest member of the court, uh, Justice Ketanji uh, Brown-Jackson, who, who um, as a new member of the court, was not reticent this term. She was, she was right there uh, and very involved all along the way, asking. She was one of the biggest questioners among the justices, et cetera. So, you know, and, and a very, very interesting case. To wrap this, this segment of it, I, it's a big deal when you're going to, court, to the court. You need to have to show some way that a party is being harmed by whatever laws in effect or something, something of that nature. And FAIR was making the case that Asians were being discriminated against. I mean, does this remotely address their problem that they had from the onset? Well, I mean, you know, we'll see what happens now. Now, I mean, there certainly were, pro were probably Asian or Asian-American applicants who got a boost um, f from, you know, certain affirmative action plans. Um, uh, on the other hand, Asian-Americans perform very, you know, I think the sense that they were being discriminated against came, comes largely from the fact that, that they perform very well, you know, in terms of GPA and tests. Um, those are those are not the only thing, though, of course, that goes into an admissions decision. We'll have to see. You know, the lower courts in these cases found that there was no discrimination, in fact, against Asian-Americans. And the Supreme Court really didn't deal with that, those factual findings. The court just went really right away to the to the to the legal question. But, you know, they, obviously they found that, that, you know, the, there was enough there to confer standing, as you pointed out. But that wasn't really the focus of the opinions. All right, let's move over to the next case, which is one I was not terribly familiar with until you brought it up. It's National Pork Producers Council v. Ross, Secretary of California Department of Food and Agriculture, which is addressing California's Proposition 12. And uh, Justice Gorsuch wrote, wrote the majority opinion, appears to connect the uh, Constitution's Interstate Commerce Clause with what was going on with this proposition. Is that fair? <laughs> yes, yeah. So this is, yeah, this is, I mean... I hope I hope your audience finds this interesting. I, I find this case super interesting. But I will say that when we cover the doctrine that's at issue in this case, it's called the Dormant Commerce Clause. You know, you probably heard collective groans go up throughout the building when I would teach Dormant Commerce Clause doctrine. So let me start with what Dormant Commerce Clause yeah. doctrine is. There's no such thing as a separate Dormant Commerce Clause in the Constitution. There is a Commerce Clause. The Commerce Clause appears in Article 1, Section 8. Uh, clause three of the Constitution, and it gives Congress the power to regulate commerce uh, between and among the states. Um, that's an affirmative grant of power to Congress. It's heavily relied upon in federal legislation that Congress enacts. From that grant of power to Congress, the courts have also inferred that the states are prohibited from interfering with interstate commerce. Uh, and they call this doctrine, it's an, it's an inference, it's a negative inference drawn from the Commerce Clause. And the idea is that the Commerce Clause preempts the ability of states um, to interfere with interstate commerce. Um, and it goes all the way back to, you know, one of the principal forces at the founding was to stop the states from engaging in economic warfare with each other. 
And so dormant commerce clause doctrine is notoriously difficult uh, for students. It's pretty incoherent, quite honestly. Um, but it's a series of cases that's, that stand for the proposition that, first, states as regulators cannot discriminate against out-of-state persons and entities uh, in the way that they regulate so as to give a benefit to in-state in persons and entities. And then secondly, there's this other strand of this doctrine that says, and even if the state isn't discriminating against out-of-staters, even if it's, it's in adopting regulations that apply to everybody, um, if those regulations impose, you know, a burden on interstate commerce that really outweighs the benefits of the law, courts can step, uh, can strike it down. And so this particular case is interesting uh, in that California doesn't produce very much pork, um, but it consumes a great deal of pork. Um, and so by California adopting this Proposition 12, which dictates how uh, sows uh, have to be housed uh, in order for the meat of their offspring to be sold in California, um, the claim was made that what California was trying to do was to impose an, an animal welfare law on the rest of the country because more than 99% of pork producers are outside the state of California. And California was effectively shutting its market to these producers unless they house sows in a way that California specifies. And that is not the industry standard. And the case really led to a highly fractured result. Um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, the California's law was upheld in an opinion by Justice Gorsuch, as you point out, that um, that actually drew support from both liberal and conservative uh, um, members of the court. Um, so anyway, the reason I think this case is so interesting, I mean, I think it's interesting in and of itself, but um, the, the implications are pretty significant for an issue that, of course, remains on everybody's mind after the Dobbs decision from last term, which is abortion. And the extent to which states, you know, many states have already moved uh, to not only, you know, uh, 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 regulate or even ban abortion within their territorial limits, but also to seek to prevent people, you know, residents of the state from traveling to other jurisdictions to obtain abortions. And, you know, the question is, is that appropriate? Can states regulate in such a way as to try to prevent their residents when their residents are not in the state from, you know, engaging in certain behavior? You know, I mean, you know, the default rule is always, it's always been understood, right? Well, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? We, you know, uh, we from New Hampshire, you know, gambling like in Las Vegas is not a thing here. But if we travel to Las Vegas, we uh, get to gamble if we want to. And we come back to New Hampshire, we don't expect to be arrested or, or uh, fined for, you know, violating New Hampshire law. Things are different, though, right now. Uh, I mean, the states are, are divided into, you know, what we call red states and blue states. And the states have become agents for challenging the policies of the party with which they disagree in litigation. And, and states... Um, and some states are, are simply not content with um, saying this is how it's going to be here. Um, they want to um, uh, go to the limits that the Constitution allows. And so, you know, this dormant commerce clause doctrine and similar doctrines, there are other doctrines, too. There's there's a doctrine, two doctrines drawn from Article 4 of the Constitution. One is called the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4. And there's another called the Full Faith and Credit Clause of Article 4. And those two doctrines also seek to protect out-of-staters from regulation by states that puts them at a disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis their own residents. So, you know, these sorts of doctrines uh, could well be in play as we turn to the next generation of laws that 
seek to regulate in controversial areas like abortion or like immigration, for example. Justice Kavanaugh wrote separately in the in the pork producers case to actually talk about that and to acknowledge that issue and to actually try to lay down a marker that the states can't, you know, that the, that the states are constrained in what they can do, at least according to Justice Kavanaugh. And that's pretty important because uh, he's one of the crucial votes, you know, as these sorts of cases come back to the Supreme Court. Another subject around these lines that I'm not sure if connects to this or not is the widespread outlook of TikTok being problematic and that many states are now beginning to address this either within their governments, but other states, I believe it's Montana is the first state that tried to is, is working to outlaw it at the state level. Do you think this case will have context for this going forward? Yeah, it absolutely could. I mean, that's that's another thing is there are certain areas where I mean, that that's a slightly different doctrine, but there are other areas where the states are barred from acting because it's understood that the federal government has the prerogative. Immigration is really the big one um, because it's always been understood that immigration is regulated at the federal level. But states uh, and certainly states that that struggle more with uh, with immigration issues are seeking more and more to flex their muscles in this area. Um, and so, you know, resolving conflicts of law between the federal government and the states um, is something that the court may well have to get involved in. And it's already had a couple of cases go to go to the court um, on that issue. And and like you say, you know, regulation of TikTok, you know, it's, you know, states, we are a country right now that is that is peeling back federal power. There's no question about it. Some of the big decisions of this term really um, made clear that this court is intent on disempowering federal agencies. And what is likely to happen is that there is going to be more and more regulatory authority pushed down to the states. Um, so this is, an, this is a, a dynamic that's going to reappear uh, time and time again. And that kind of does go into this last case we're going to do a deeper dive on in Moore v. Harper, which is on gerrymandering, a subject we've addressed many times in the past in this podcast because it's been very relevant to New Hampshire and for right. the last several years. In this case, the they said that the state states' courts have rights to make decisions on, on rulings by co- state Congress. So dive into this. Yeah, this is, this, is, this, is, this is getting in the weeds here. So a few years ago, this, the U.S. Supreme Court in a case called Rucho held five to four uh, that partisan gerrymandering cannot be challenged in federal court under the federal Constitution, even if it gets to a level that violates the Constitution. In that decision, though, the court made clear that that limitation does not apply to state courts um, applying state constitutions, that that if state constitutions um, protect against partisan gerrymandering claims, and if state courts want to recognize that, um, then, you know, the, the ruling in Rucho doesn't bar that. Um, and that's what happened. Um, you know, North Carolina uh, drew a map after the last census that was alleged to have, uh, it, you know, or it, it actually, I mean, it did. It was, it was sort of undenied that it engaged in, in extensive partisan gerrymandering. Uh, the North Carolina Supreme Court uh, construed the uh, provision of the North Carolina Constitution uh, to have been violated and held that that map could not be used. Uh, at that time, uh, the North Carolina Supreme Court was uh, had a 4-3 Democratic majority. Following uh, the next election, Republicans took over the New- North Carolina Supreme Court. That That decision was withdrawn. Uh, the case went to the Supreme Court. There was actually a question of whether it had become moot because of what had happened at the state level. But a majority of the justices said, no, it's not moot because North Carolina did not re- reinstate the map that was originally struck down. And so that there was still potential relief available if, in fact, the court were to adopt 
the, a strong version of this independent state legislature doctrine. But this doctrine holds that when it comes to federal elections, so we're only talking about federal election yeah. because, you know, the state legislatures you know, draw maps for Congress and state legislatures certify electors for when we elect president. OK, that's under Article one and Article two of the Constitution. Insofar as we're talking about federal elections, the independent state legislature doctrine Argue, uh, the strongest version of it argued that it's up to state legislatures and state legislatures alone to draw federal congressional maps um, and to certify the slate of electors that go to vote at the Electoral College. Um, state courts cannot review the actions of state legislatures under the state constitution. That's the strong version. That version was rejected in Moore versus Harper. Um, and a majority of the court said no. Yes, federal courts can review state court determinations under state constitutions that the state legislature has gone too far. That is subject to federal review because the federal constitution does confer power in state legislatures in the elections clause of Article 1 and in Article 2, which talks about the Electoral College. So there is going to be some review. Um, and we don't, the court didn't specify what the standard is going to be, but it pretty strongly suggested that there's going to be deference to state courts. Now, this was, of course, closely watched because state legislatures um, have been proposing all sorts of stuff um, uh, in the voting area, uh, you know, leading up to and then the years since the two, 2020 election. And so um, there was a lot of concern that state le a state legislature could on its own just decide to certify for example, a different state a slate of electors than the one that was chosen in the popular vote for president. Now, that would, I think, pretty clearly violate the federal constitution. I don't think that could have happened anyway. But, you know, this idea of totally unconstrained state legislatures um, was worrisome to, you know, uh, democracy, to per certain people who are concerned about the state of our democracy. And so this was viewed as a, you know, um, um, you know, not what it could have been as, as, a, as a ruling that, yes, preserved a role for federal review, but um, no, didn't leave state legislatures unconstrained uh, in, when it comes to federal elections. And what does this mean for New Hampshire, which recently did have a, a case go to the state Supreme Court around this? Yeah, I mean, it really doesn't change anything in New Hampshire. The, re the reason it went to the state Supreme Court is that the governor vetoed the map that the legislature um, had came up with after the last census. Um, and then a lawsuit was filed and the lawsuit said, look, the legislature, we can't keep using the old maps because there had been population shifts in New Hampshire. Um, and there is a federal constitutional principle of one person, one vote. And so the two districts in New Hampshire for congressional elections need to have roughly the same number of people in them. So the, that lawsuit brought the thing to federal court. And what happened is the state Supreme Court very quickly became involved and said, look, you've, you've missed your deadline. Um, under our law, that means that we appoint an expert who draws maps. They did so. Those maps were used in the 2022 midterm elections, um, uh, congressional midterms elections here in New Hampshire. Now, there's still litigation in New Hampshire state court about, about gerrymandering, too, the gerrymandering of the uh, executive council districts and the state senate. Um, all, none of that is affected by the independent state legislature doctrine. That doctrine only applies to what the legislature does in connection with federal elections. All right. So those are three big cases, but there are many other on on the slate uh, this past term. And uh, just five minutes, I mean, talk about some of the other things that stood out to you. Well, one of them, I've, one dynamic I already referenced and one case I already referenced was Biden versus Nebraska, where the Biden administration, you know, forgave, you know, billions of dollars in student loans. 
Um, the Supreme Court said can't do it um, and once again invoked this new doctrine that is emerging called the Major Questions Doctrine. Um, and the Major Questions Doctrine holds that, that the court is going to give a very narrow reading to statutory grants of authority from Congress to federal agencies when federal agencies undertake measures that have profound economic or political effects uh, in the country. So it's basically a rule of construction uh, that says federal statutes are going to be narrowly construed. And that's very different uh, from uh, what the rule was under a case called Chevron decided in the 1980s that said we actually defer to agency interpretations of the statute that gives them power. Um, so this major questions doctrine was used to strike down uh, uh, efforts to require that people at certain businesses be vaccinated or else wear a mask and be tested once a week during COVID. Um, it struck down a plan to apply the Clean Air Act, try to prompt electric producers to move to more clean energy sources. And now it's, it's been used a third time to say that order was not, was based on a construction of, uh, of the statute that was uh, not contemplated by Congress when Congress enacted the statute. This is going to continue, I think, to come up again and again. I think, you know, there's already a case on the docket for next year where the court is going to explicitly consider whether to overrule its Chevron precedent from the 1980s. I expect that the court is basically going to say Chevron's already overruled de facto because it is, quite honestly. And, and the, you know, the net effect of this, the court has also in other cases said, well, if Congress does want to give more power to administrative agencies, then we have a different problem. That, that's the, a problem called the non-delegation doctrine. Now, it's not been since the 1930s that the court has held that Congress um, violated the Constitution by delegating too much legislative power to executive branch agencies. But several members of the court have expressed enthusiasm for a renewed focus on that doctrine. And so on the one hand, what you have in major questions doctrine is you have the court saying grants of power to agencies need to be very, very narrowly read. Okay. Um, if though the agency is very clear, we want to give a lot of power, we want to give a lot of power, then there's going to be a constitutional problem with that. So it's going to you know, sort of pinch in from both sides. I think the power of the administrative state is going to be severely curtailed by this court. They're going to use the major questions doctrine. There's also another case on the court's docket for next year, which may well say, hold that the, that the funding mechanism used for the CF, I always get the acronym wrong, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Did I get that right? CFB, uh, whatever. But, you know, the agency that Elizabeth Warren, uh, you know, takes, takes the responsibility credit, depending on how you view it you know, for forming, that the way in which that agency is funded is, is unconstitutional. So, I mean, I, again, that has, and, and there are lots of federal agencies that are funded in that way, independent agencies that are in, designed to be more independent of the political branches. Um, that could have profound effects. The movement in the area of administrative law is significant. I'd also mention just, again, that we see uh, religious persons continuing to win at the Supreme Court. Uh, a postal worker who did not want to work on the Sabbath, but was made to work on the Sabbath um, because doing so caused more than a de minimis uh, inconvenience to his employer, brought a claim under the Free Exercise Clause, and the court did away with that de minimis standard and says that said that that persons such as this worker need to be accommodated unless it imposes an undue burden on the employer, which is a much higher standard. Uh, and then, of course, there was the uh, website designer uh, case uh, 
that was not framed explicitly in, you know, as a battle between the free exercise clause and the anti-discrimination principles, free speech. This was a web designer who said that um, uh, it would violate her First Amendment speech rights to be forced uh, to be compelled to design a website for a same-sex couple. Um, now, her First Amendment speech rights were tied to her religious beliefs. That's why she didn't want to be speaking in this way. And the court, um, to no one's surprise, uh, but over strong dissents, held that she could not be compelled by anti-discrimination laws to do the work that she didn't want to do. Now, this is the first time, though, that the court has held that businesses, you know, uh, which are places of, of public accommodation, uh, can exempt themselves. It was, it, again, it, the case was based on free speech principles, uh, but, but it, it won't be long until religious persons um, uh, make a, same cl a similar claim under the free exercise clause and say, for religious reasons, uh, even though I'm a, a place of public accommodation, I'm a hotel, I'm a restaurant, I'm a business owner, um, I don't want to do business with certain types of people because of my religious beliefs. Professor John Gravy, Warmby Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, AJ. Thanks for listening to Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help start word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast.